Welcome to Derailed Trains of Thought. Welcome back to Derailed Trains of Thoughts. This is Tim Z. Deal, a.k.a. Rescue Guy. And this is Nick Hayden, a.k.a. Hmm. Oh, say Nick, I'll go with today. No one really calls me that, but hey, it's uh, Christmas. Sounds good to me. Um, yeah, and Merry Christmas. Welcome to a very special uh, edition of Derailed Trains of Thought. For the first time, we are recording from the same location. Yes, Tim is right next to me, and so this is kind of uh, Derailed Trains Unplugged. We don't have much plans to actually edit this thing like we normally do. So if you hear us saying a lot of us and you knows a lot more than usual, now you know why. And you might actually get some of our uh, ridiculous um, missteps put in here. <laughs> Quite, <I don't> poss- <laughs> Quite possibly. We're going to keep try to keep it a shorter episode just because we don't have much time and or inclination and editing because we're on Christmas break right now. Yeah, we're both trying to uh, just get to a place where we don't have to do much work. (laughs) Well, with that said, uh, I think let's go ahead and move on to story school. Our topic this week, which we alluded to briefly at the end of last week's or last episode, I don't know if you caught that or not, but if you didn't, make sure you go seek that out because it was funny. The very last minute after the last song. Yeah. But today we're talking a bit about how our writing or how our storytelling changes as we age. This is kind of the end of the year, so it's a good time for looking back and seeing where we've come from and where we're going. Um, Nick, I know there's a lot of stories and short films I've made that I would not really want to share with anyone else at this time. I imagine you feel the same way about some of your oh, old stuff. Yeah, some of it. Anything about post-freshman year in college, I might not like go, this is the best thing ever, but I find that there's things... I wouldn't write it again, but I can see why I wrote it, I guess. Are there themes and things that you feel you see yourself using less often now than you used to? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, it's not really a theme, is that when I was first started doing a lot of writing in, I guess, probably high school, I did a lot of first person. First person humor mm. was kind of my, my thing. Um, and then I went through a whole stage where I didn't write any first person because I realized that I tend to ramble in first person. And I was trying to learn how to write stories that were a little more structured. So I haven't really come back to first person until, well, relatively recently, I guess. I think um, Olive Gold was first person, but that kind of has a slight extravagant voice to it. And I think I like doing first person only when the voice is extravagant in some manner. Yeah, that's true. I think the only first person of yours I think I'd really read before that point was stuff we did for the story project when we were writing journals and, you know, very, which is very, you know, from a personal perspective. That's true. I guess I completely forgot about story project. I did do first person for that and I I like it, but I guess I'm I'm much more um, sparing with it than I used to be. It used to be my my default. Okay. So that's changed theme wise. 
well, in high school, you always write the, you know, the love story that was secretly you. Um, <laughs> or, you know, or the things that were imitations. I remember in eighth grade writing this, this story about um, this caravan of travelers. And then they got in some sort of war and then there was lots of violence. Someone got his head chopped off. And because for some reason, in middle school, you could do massive amounts of violence and you don't feel anything about it. <laughs> But it was highly, highly inspired because of reading Wheel of Time first just started at the time. And so, like, all the characters were and societies were very influenced by that. Um, and I think the stuff I write now tends to be less influenced by what I read and, uh, from, you know, what I read and watch than it used to be. That makes sense. I, I think I had a tendency to go towards kidnappings a lot in my first stuff. I, I think my, well, my very, if you look at my very, very earliest stories that I tried to write as a kid, that was involving naturally, you know, kid detectives and kids, you know, in, going on adventures and stuff. Cause that's, that's what I read at the time. And I, I'm not sure when I grew up. There's a lot of stories that I started that I, I never really finished. So what do you think of your old stuff? Do you like, I guess it'd be a two part question. Do you like most and has maybe stuck around and that you like least and has changed. What do I like most and what do I like about it that's least from yeah, old and, stuff? Yeah. Um well I mean I I I like that I focus I mean, I don't regret doing some the adventures kind of stuff. Um I particularly I'm thinking back on like a pirate story that, that you've read that was back from high school and there is another story I wrote about this organization trying to exerts world dominance and the first way they collected funds was by taking an entire mall hostage <laughs> which i thought was kind of a fun idea but probably um i think i well aside from when i wasn't trying to do adventure stuff i was probably trying to be a little bit too too direct with the moral that i tried to stick into the story i think probably my first the first chapter i did with the revolution which was a serial that we did in undergrad was probably a little too heavy-handed with with a particular motion. I think I was interested in confession then in that story. Although I think my second story that we did, I did for that serial dragons intertwined was much more solid. So it's, I mean, it's a process. I guess I'll go ahead and answer the same question for me. What I find most interesting looking at my old stuff is my similar ideas keep recropping even my modern stuff. Hmm. Certain ideas that I wrote back then in a short story, but it wasn't quite right, so I want to do it again, basically, but differently. I know one thing I've improved on is that I used to write short stories that either wouldn't feel like they ended, which I guess I still have problems with, oh, or <laughs> or sometimes that's I, that's by the way that's my pet peeve of student filmmakers: films that don't have an ending. That absolutely <laughs> drives me nuts because so many of them do it. <laughs> Well, you watch a lot of student films. Well, recently, yeah. <laughs> there was there was one. I'm I'm not gonna say the name of it. It was about this pastor that I watched for. Uh, recently, Regent had a student film festival, and I was one of the people who watched all 28 of them uh, to help vote for the ones that would get in. And there's this one about this pastor who was going under a lot of stress, and it was very sad. But the whole story was basically just. He's sad, he's sad, he's really sad, he's really stressed, he's just sad. And then, what? but what they didn't say is that you didn't know at first that was a pastor, but it was kind of obvious because people would like keep coming up to him and say, can I talk to you about this? And he was just overwhelmed. 
So he was sad, he's sad, he's sad, he's sad. And then he has an emotional breakdown. And oh my goodness, big reveal. He's a pastor. <laughs> the end. That's not a story. That's a situation. <laughs> so anyway. So pet peeve of Tim's. <laughs> Stories that don't end. Well, I think in my case, I remember one in particular in high school I wrote that I thought had a story, like a conclusion. I guess either... Either it was too subtle, or I thought it did, and no one else did. And again, I haven't read it since, hardly. Um, but I know I had a big problem with not being able to explain what I was saying. Mm. I mean, I do, especially in fantasy-related things, where I'd write something, and people could tell I was meaning something, but they didn't. I didn't give enough information, partly because sometimes either the world was different enough, or... My, my brain works a little strange, and um, even now sometimes people have a hard time catching up, and I'm, I'm better at it, catching up with the world I've created, because I'll mix a lot of different elements that people would just have kind of um, as stock images. Mm. Um, so that's at least one improvement I've seen a lot of, and I, I know... See, I think I had the opposite problem. I was trying to be too blatant with the Christian messages I was trying to get across, and... The more I real, more I read and thought about it, I realized that's not what, really what I like in Christian stories. It's really more, I got developed more into the mindset of just being who you are without specifically trying to get a certain idea across and just tell the story as it wants to be told. I think a lot of my early stuff had, it was fueled mainly by massive amounts of idea and creativity, but it wasn't honed at all. So you read now, it seems really rough, really like, it doesn't communicate what I thought it did back in the day because mm. people was, couldn't weren't reading your mind. <laughs> people weren't reading my mind exactly, and I think I'm a little better at that now. But yeah, there's some things where I was had this great and I thought it was genius and I wrote it down and wasn't it funny? And right now I'm like, well, that joke's really kind of blunt, and this one's could be more subtle. And um, I think I've learned also just being well, I'm still learning how to imply things while making sure the audience can still get it. You know, assuming the audience is intelligent, but not so intelligent that they can read your mind. Yeah, that's important. Uh, subject matter. I mean, we touched this a little bit. Subject matter has changed for you? Um, well, probably. Um, part of that is I didn't... I was a bit unlike you in that I didn't really get all that much into fantasy until, I, until like, the end of high school. I was, I was kind of resistant to it for a long time. I think partly because... Well, I was very slow in watching movies. Like when I watched, tried to watch Star Wars as a seven-year-old, I was completely scared half the time. It wasn't until I was 12 that I thought it was awesome. Um, and so 80s fantasy was always kind of weirded me out. Um, so it took 80s me, fantasy is still weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's, Good, but weird. It's true. So it took me a while to get... It wasn't until I read Lord of the Rings in, in my senior year of high school that I really started getting enthusiastic about fantasy. So it's definitely I definitely see a lot more of that. I mean, I don't write as much um, these days as I, actually as I used to. But I think... I mean, Tale of Fairies. I never would have written that back beginning of high school or junior high. Not that kind of thing. I know I tend to write, well, mainly fantasy because that's what I read in some in science fiction. Because I read a lot of science fiction. I don't read much of science fiction at all anymore. But I think having, you know, during college and especially after college, after I got married and stuff, I, more, I guess, drama. You know, cobblestones, I don't think I would have ever written before. And cobblestones for, I think we mentioned once before, it kind of was 
collection of stories that take place in a small town and, you know, relatively normal stories for the most part and not fantastical. And I didn't start that till college, and that's when I started figuring out how you could write stories that weren't necessarily humorous. Yeah, I would always write humor or fantasy, mm. or sometimes both. Um, but things that were a little more serious without being overblown, overdone. I'm still trying to get the hang the hang of writing for very realistic. It's it's actually very difficult for me to write in more realistic situations. I and I think because I'm not as naturally drawn to that. And not that, I mean, I really enjoy everyday life. It's just, it's harder for me, I think, to see, to get enough conflict, at least enough conflict that I'm interested in and can really build up. I guess most of, actually, most of my things that would be called drama are, if they're not, you know, or realistic, if they're not some sort of romantic comedy, um, <laughs> which is also one of my, uh, any sort of comedy, it tended to be my first, first things writing. And I don't, and sometimes I, I, I I'll, I'll tell my wife, like, I never write anything funny anymore. And then I'll, like, write something funny the next day. <laughs> um, but I go back and forth much more than I used to. But the thing with most of my, like, the Cobblestones examples, most of my real-life realistic things tend to then become um, theological, I guess. Mm -hmm. Most of my Cobblestones episodes tend to deal with some sort of, the, you know, some sort of uh, how religion meets real life. Not on purpose. I think that's just, like you said, the drama of that, the conflict of that is what interests me when sometimes the conflict of other sorts of things don't. You're, you're not the type to write about divorces and scandals and stuff like that, but or not that that's everyday life in Kinderville or anything like that. <laughs> it probably is. Who knows? <laughs> but yeah, I, it's more, I can see where you're going with more theology, especially with, say, local man struck by lightning. Or even... um. It was called. It was called. Um, and, but it was. It was told backwards. That which is hidden, and it's just about this guy's life, basically, and him trying to, you know, be all in charge of his own life. And it's kind of a story about how this one sin when he was sixteen, it just haunted him. It wasn't even a big sin. It was like a dumb sin, hunted him through his whole life. And the story is told backwards. So at the end, at the beginning, you see like him trying to confess this send to the police and then goes backwards trying to figure out what it was that sort of stuff i guess you know more hawthorne ish sounds almost i haven't actually read her but it sounds kind of like what dorothy sayers sort of thing she might write oh i haven't read dorothy sayers but maybe if, if i remember right she wrote a lot of realistic kind of exploring the hearts of of men sort of sort of works or am i yeah i think that's dorothy sayers i'm thinking of she inspired the lost a bit Okay, and I know she wrote a number of mysteries. That's what she's most famous for. That's probably what I'm thinking of. So she used the mystery genre, in a sense, to explore real people and how difficult it was for them to change. Mystery genre is one of those that I think I would like to try. I've I, got more... I, I've tiptoed deeper and deeper into it in kind of a speculative fiction sort of way, mm -hmm. but never in like a realistic way. I would love to try to write mystery. I used to really read a lot of detective uh, stories and stuff like that. And if we had done... I don't know why we didn't choose mystery as one of our projects for uh, for when you did the Pulp Fiction that thing. That would have been great. I would have liked to have done a Pulp Fiction for that. But it's funny. Sometimes I feel like I've done my best writing for those serials and projects that we've done. And I don't know if that's partly because I'm working with the world with some things that have already been set up in, like, say, The Revolution or in, say, you know, Nate's story or, or Aaron's superhero story. I don't know. I, I do think... And this is getting off the topic slightly. 
that I tend to do some, I agree with this, some of my best work, at least that I feel is my best work, in other people's universes. Mm. And I think it's because you're working in a communal setting and that you can take the best ideas of what someone else had and add it to your best ideas. Yeah. And plus it challenges you because you have to kind of fit into someone else's uh, world. Um, so I've always enjoyed group projects. I, I think they can be, if you have the right group of people who can play off each other and not fight each other. Yeah. <laughs> but generally, we've had good luck with finding. Yeah. We're blessed that way, I think. But we're talking mostly about writing um, this story school rather than the filmmaking, but that's partly because, I mean, I still consider myself in the learning and growing process. Well, I mean, you're always growing in, in your craft and no matter what that is. But as far as filmmaking goes, I feel I still feel pretty, I mean, I'm certainly better than I was in undergrad, but I've, I feel like I have a long way to go. So it's harder for me to say, you know, where I've come from, where I'm going without being, without going to specifics. Cause I could point, you know, different technical details or visual details, but I'm, it's harder to just talk about. I would say, just, I haven't had much experience with film, except I did, I did three movies in college that Tim helped me with one of them. Talk to that about that briefly. And, um, at least from the writing point of view of the of the films, I think I've grown better and better at writing for film as opposed to writing a story <laughs> that a lot of people are talking and then you film it. Well, it was very interesting when you wrote a screenplay as a bonus story for a girl called Snort. It was I could tell it was much more visually driven than some of your other ones. And I I, I always had the idea of trying to write a full full screenplay in a very visual manner because it's. I'm not necessarily a visual person. My writing style tends to be more impressionistic, more giving you the impressions of things than the description of things. Which actually, I've discovered if you do it right with screenwriting, can be real, at least as a script format, can be really good. Because that's all the director, I think, wants is the impression of what it's supposed to be. A lot of times. And I think it's the thing that, the more with more practice, you'll get better at it. Because it's funny, I was... Um, during Sunday, when I was listening to a sermon at, at church, it's funny, you know, how, I don't know if this ever happens to you, something the pastor says at one point inspires a story idea, and from that yep. point on, I, I have a hard time actually listening to the sermon. Yeah, I've done that. And, and in this case, I'm thinking of different scenes about how, okay, how could these, how could these be kept against each other? Or what? <laughs> and it helps, you know, that's, you just get a, get a knack for seeing things, yeah, seeing things played out as opposed to just the, the facts themselves. I do think also having, you know, being married, um, I've, I've been able to write story ideas I wouldn't be able to write convincingly or even touch with a 10-foot pole otherwise beforehand. I remember this, this story about um, Isaac Asimov, that he never wrote many female characters in his books until he had, ex I don't remember what the experience was, but, you know, knew more about girls. Uh -huh. And then there's an iRobot short story um, about Sue, I think her name's Susan. Anyone who knows Asimov knows what I'm talking about, I think. But the story where she's in charge of the robots, and then she starts putting herself up because the robot says this guy likes her, and she, the robot's doing it to make her feel good and not because the guy actually said anything. Um, I, I think that's true that as they mature and have more, a larger amount of experience, there's more things they can write about in a way that makes sense and that connect, hopefully connects to other people. Because actually, when you're in high school, you, you tend to write more based on what you've seen other people write as mm. opposed to what you've actually gone through. Or when you write what you've gone through, it's basically you've slightly hidden yourself. 
you're trying to emulate something that someone else has done, um, and but make it different enough that it doesn't seem like you're totally ripping them off. Yeah, or or you're just trying to. And I, I think some people, and even past teenage years, you know, use writing as a sort of vehicle to live out dreams or ways they wish they would have been. Well, that's what fan fiction is all about. Well, yeah. Sometimes, well, okay, not all about. <laughs> no offense to any fan fictioners out there, but you know, sometimes there are people that will write themselves into their their favorite scenarios, their favorite stories. I did. I used. To, I wrote one or two fan fictions back in high school. No, I hadn't touched it much besides that. I but. think the only fan fiction that I ever started, I never finished it, involved uh, Carmen Sandiego, and <laughs> nice. it was about. It was, it was about actually, and I had written myself into it. It was the, the idea is I was working. I was a detective working with Acme, and we decided to go back in time to get Sherlock Holmes to, to help us catch Carmen Sandiego. <laughs> I, I kind of wish I had finished it now, but it didn't get very far. I remember the one I tried to, well, I wrote too. One was based off, we. I used to play the Star Wars role-playing game, and I wrote a fictional version of one of our adventures. Oh, nice. Well, the other one was, and this was before, in much of the comics or anything else touched anything pre-A New Hope. I think I was reading Tales of the Jedi by Dark Horse at the time. But uh, writing about the guy who first invented the hyperdrive. And about the first kind of moving outwards into space um, in the Star like, Wars universe. That'd be like really, really ancient stuff. Really ancient. I mean, I guess Star Trek did it with kind of first contact. That's the first time oh. humans got whatever they call it in Star See, Trek Warp Drive. I'm a terrible nerd. I still haven't watched First Contact, even though I've heard it's the best of the new generation. And I, I do have to point out here, listeners, that we were talking about 80s fantasy, that Tim Deal still needs to watch a never-ending story. Dude, don't tell him that. <laughs> That's another nerd embarrassment. I've Take never... on Tales. Sometime you need to come and talk about Neverending Story. It would probably be therapeutic. <laughs> 80s fantasy is just something about it. It's unique. It is. There's nothing much like it. That's true. No, it really isn't. But Well, we've been all over the place, but this is kind of a, we wanted to keep this a little shorter one, so I think it's a good place to wrap it up. Any summary summarizing thoughts there? Um, no, I guess just for me, and I, I'm sure it's a little different for everyone, is that there's some stuff in my past I'm probably embarrassed I wrote, but I can see kind of a continuity in ideas trying to get ex the the what ideas I try to get expressed, and I think probably I'll keep writing the same handful of ideas over and over again. You mm -hmm. know, if you which a lot of directors do. There are certain ideas that are important to you as a person, um, that to your core beliefs, and yeah, definitely don't leave those aside just because you've done one before. There's probably a lot of ways you think you can explore that same idea. And I, th I think that's why I see looking back that, and I, I wish I wrote more uh, straight up humor than I do now. But that's my. Idea. I would love to see more veterinarian uh, hospital style uh, skits come from you. Like that one pun-filled detective. Thing. It's just hard to write humor when you don't have an, a specific audience. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, and but I think the main thing to keep away is or take away is, although there may be things that we wouldn't really want to show people, you know, form works. I don't think either of us are sorry that we did those because you have to write that kind of stuff to get to where you are now. You have to write a million words of crap. To get something good, yeah. and I think about hit my million. And, so. and the same, the same is true for filmmaking. I, I think uh, Robert Rodriguez I, I said that, that everyone has at least six or seven really bad movies in them. So hopefully, you can go to film school, get some of those out. Um, okay, I guess it's time for soundtrack. Yeah.
Our first one is I'm doing this strictly from memory. So I'm, I'll have to, after we listen to it, I'll have to tell you who remixed it. But we're trying to do some Christmassy uh, soundtracks today. And the first one is William Wobbler's Christmas. It's Christmassy, it's kind of fun. Um, it's from a game I've never heard of. And I'll fill you in on the details after the break. All right. <laughs> was a William Wobbler Christmas from the game William Wobbler. That was for a Commodore 64. Um, it's kind of just fun and cheery and slightly Christmassy. Slightly ridiculous. It's like, yeah, but <laughs> it, I, it, it stuck in my memory for a long, long time, so I figure off the top of my head I just pulled it out. So uh, It was remixed by Chris Abbott and Slow Poison. Costello. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so that was... A William Wobbler Christmas. All right. Well, next we're gonna do a slightly modified version. A slightly modified version of our take on Tales. Well, this is our uh, only Christmas episode. We'll see how many of you actually listen to it before Christmas. But, uh, so, but we thought we'd talk a little bit about some of our favorite uh, Christmas specials doing. With our own, well, we decided to both do kind of our own top three, although I imagine there's going to be some um, 
duplicates here. <laughs> Tim and I don't think at all alike. No, man, man, I don't even know what this guy is thinking half the time. Uh, but let's go ahead and start with uh, Nick. You want to give us your number three? My number three, I think, would be um, it kind of like past, present, future. Ernest saves Christmas. Oh, really? I used to watch that a lot, and I just have a lot of fond memories of watching Ernest saves Christmas and a lot of the lines. And the reindeer on the roof of the warehouse and that guy bugging his eyes out. And how Ernest would be like talking about how um, <laughs> Santa has to squeeze through the, the the grate if they don't have a chimney. And I don't know. I just remember having lots of fun and watching it almost every year. That's fun. I've never actually got much, that much into the Ernest series for, for some reason. So I might have to actually... Uh, seek that out. Uh, that's what was by far my my favorite. Um, actually, about the only one I watched like repeatedly. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun. It was, you know, it's like a lot of these Christmas ones where you have to pick a new Santa, mm -hmm. um, and he's helping pick a new Santa, and he helps save Christmas, and he's completely ridiculous, and he has helps Vern. You know, hey Vern, um, with his <laughs> uh, his Christmas lights was a complete disaster, and talk. You know, I don't know. I have very fond memories of it. I don't think I've watched it for the last year or two. But. All right. Well, for my third, and all three of these, honestly, are kind of interchangeable. You could, I could flip-flop on some of them pretty easily and which is better or what, what not. But I, I think for number three, I'm going to go with a Charlie Brown Christmas. That's really good, too. It's one of the, it's one of the specials that I, I feel like I have to watch every year. Just because, and it's funny that it's so successful because it's so simple, really. It's the first Charlie Brown animated special. It's there's just this very kind of rough charm to it. I mean, if you look at some of the animation, it's a little rough around the edges. Sometimes you see some mistakes, um, but it's got a lot of heart to it. And and when Linus gives the true meaning of Christmas, and you, you can't help but feel feel touched. I mean, even though it's the story we all know, I mean, rightfully so. It's just a beautiful rendition of it. The child's actors' voices are just, you know, fun to listen to each and every year, and it's just an all-time classic. You know, my brother actually has a Charlie Brown, a Charlie Brown Christmas tree this year. They huh? sell them. Oh, really? Yeah, a little, Very... little. They're about like three feet tall, and they bend over, have one ornament on them. <laughs> Very cute. I've always, I've always been very partial to the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. I was wanting to buy this little tiny ugly looking Christmas tree. Uh, my wife, though, she doesn't mind the tiny. She's not really for the ugly. Yeah, you you usually get kind of small trees. I've noticed for your house. I mean, your house is small anyway, so well, it works well. For and it. this year we had to get it off the ground so that our one year old wouldn't tear it apart. So. <laughs> Fun. All right, what's your number two? Number two would have to be a Muppet Christmas Carol. Ah, uh, see, yeah, I knew we were gonna, both going to have this one. <laughs> Which is just has wonderful songs. Michael Caine does a fabulous job of Ebenezer Scrooge. It has a, it, and it has a lot of heart too. You know, it's it's silly like a lot of Muppets, but all the all the Muppets seem to fit perfectly in the roles they're given. I mean, come on, Fozzie is as Fozzie wig. <laughs> I mean, it, it it's like a perfect fit for the Muppets, which and and it was just really well done. One thing I think is amazing about that movie is the music. The music is fabulous. I think some of the songs are some of the most Christian songs you will find in a secular Hollywood movie. The ways of love make clear. It is the season of the spirit. The message if we hear it is make it last on here. 
if you listen to the lyrics, just it's all about love. It's all about. I mean, there's one song with when the Cratchits sing that's really literally a prayer, and mm -hmm. you could certainly yeah. take it one way and say, you know, it's it's token warm affection stuff. But really, if you if you think about it, it's actually very, you know, it's very true. It's very unassuming and you know, simple theology, but nonetheless very true. And that seems to be the whole the whole movie is very simple and unassuming, but just works really well on all the levels. Yeah. I think it's one of the best adaptations of A Christmas Carol, and people probably look at you funny when you say that. My, my family completely, my brother and I insist to watch it every year. I, I need to get it. I, I We usually have to borrow it from my grandma or something, but I really need to have my own copy of it. Especially being the hardcore Muppets fan that I am. <laughs> Damn! <laughs> well, uh, my number two, I have kind of a funny feeling might be your number one, um, but... We you can argue the, the <laughs> logistics of it, but I, for number two, I I'd say it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. Yes. Yeah. I, well, go ahead. You do your thing first. Well, it's you know it's an undisputed classic. It's one of the few movies. Well, I don't know about few movies. It's one of the movies that can get me to you know, break down and cry pretty regularly. Even though no matter how many times I see it, few movies I think can really impact us on the same level as as far as what what is life all about? I mean, it's not just about Christmas. It's about life all you know in general, and the truth that one life can make a huge difference in the world is a, a message that I think we all need to hear regularly. And it was interesting because I hadn't seen this movie till like three years ago. You know, it's on the <laughs> TV all the time. I see little bits of it. I'm like, what's this? Why why does everyone watch this movie? And I watch it, and I'm just like, I'm floored. I'm like, this is this is a genius movie. This is wonderful. You know. And it really, to me, where it really connects is the idea of the, the suffering servant, that um, George Bailey, he just does everything for everyone all the time. And I think that that idea of sacrificial love, that he, he which is why his life meant so much to everyone, yeah. um, is very Christmas what it's really all, all about. I mean, if there's anything, you know, we celebrate, you know, Christ coming, it's this kind of laying down everything to come here. Um, and that's always been a particular interest to me in my writing and in the in the movies I watch. I mean, this idea of suffering for for the sake of love for other people. And then seeing that that sacrifice rewarded. I think that, you know, everyone bringing, you know, pitching in to the help when, you know, after they've been and, and, and portrayed very realistically. It's not like he does it and he's, he knows he's all a good person. He, he's beat down by it. I mean, yeah. it's a very realistic uh, reaction. I mean, you feel great for the guy, but he's the sort of guy I want to be. Mm. And the thing is with George Bailey and why he's such a great guy is that he doesn't know he's that sort of guy. Um, well, in and, a sense, he doesn't want to be that sort of guy. <laughs> he doesn't want to be that sort of guy. He just all he wants is just a normal life and go off away from the town, and he he just can't. Um, and there's just so many great. I mean, um, Jimmy Stewart is just such great, so great in that role, and everyone else does actually too. I heard a very interesting story about Jimmy Stewart. Our pastor actually preached on this this last Sunday. Uh, I guess they've been doing kind of a sermon series about using Christmas specials as kind of a launching point. To, for sermon basically and we talked about it's a wonderful life which interestingly enough he he admitted that he had never actually sat and watched the whole thing through himself beforehand either <laughs> but then he it became his one of his all-time favorites but um apparently originally in the scene like at the bar where he's he's crying and he's praying 
he wasn't originally scripted to to have a crying scene there, but apparently, according to the research or something that he that Pastor had read, apparently uh, while he was preparing for that scene, he was so caught up in you know what his own life, Jimmy Stewart, what his own life had been like, and whether wondering whether or not you know it had really had an impact on anyone, and the tears just started flowing naturally, and the director saw this and and pushed the camera in. He made sure he got a close-up on that and really captured the raw emotion that was coming out. That, I mean, you can't ask for better come from your actors if you want your actors to be feeling exactly what the character's feeling, no matter how hurtful and hard that might be. But I think, from what I hear, Jimmy Stewart emerged from that experience a born-again Christian. He, you know, it, was a, it was a powerful film for him to be in. It's just, it's a wonderful film. The only reason I ranked it number two instead of number one, as I imagine you have it, is it's not one that I I have an inclination to watch every year. Because it, it, it's, it's a, rough. It's rough. <laughs> it's it's a long movie, and the first half is just all bad things Well, happen. see, I, I read mine more like Past, Present, Future, meaning It's a Wonderful Life is a very new movie to me. Oh, so I kind of rated it that, in that manner. Yeah, and my number one was Muppet Christmas Carol, only because that's one that I can watch in every year. In fact, I, I really want to watch it every yes, year. Yes, I agree. Are there, I was just thinking, is there any movie that you thought about putting on this list that just... That you know you like, but not enough to put on the list. Probably, um, like Rudolph. Or I would reindeer. say Rudolph the Reindeer's Reindeer. That's just a really wonderful claiming, and it's, I think it's very similar to Charlie Brown Christmas. There's something about the roughness of the animation in that it just makes it all the more charming. Yeah, I consider doing that one. I also consider doing this movie I used to watch. I don't think it's very popular anymore. Called Santa Claus the Movie with John Lithgow and Dudley Moore. I vaguely remember that. That uh, yeah, it's, it's it's probably more childhood memories than anything about the movie. I guess the other one I would throw in there is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Oh, yeah. The, the original cartoon. The cartoon, course, not, yeah. the, not the awful Jim Carrey movie. <laughs> yeah, I didn't much care for the Jim Carrey movie. I, I really enjoy the the animated version. Chuck, I mean, Chuck Jones, is the which did who did a lot of Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. Just you know, wonderful stuff all around. There is just so, so much good stuff to pick out for. Yeah. For Christmas, and you don't get many new good Christmas Christmas movies. Now it's real. I'm not sure why that is. It's really hard to. I don't know if it's our new secularized. Something society. I wonder whether it's just hard to make a Christmas movie when people don't have the same attachment to. I mean, the same sort of attachment to Christmas as used to be. That's possible. Sometimes you kind of feel like they're trying too hard to kind of recapture feelings that seem to be be captured so easily. I guess one. Well, we say it's easy, but you know, you, we have like four movies out of how many have probably been made. That's <laughs> that's a very good point. I mean, for every uh, for every Santa Claus movie, you also have Santa Claus Con- conquers the Martians. Yes, which is also not a good movie. <laughs> Hilarious. Hilarious. Great movie. But not uh, not to be taken seriously at all. I guess a, a more well, I mean, I guess Muppet Christmas Carol is. It is a relatively modern, relatively movie. modern, and I, I would also throw in. I like the Santa Claus with Tim Allen. Yeah, the first one. I'm not, I'm not huge on the. On the, sequels, the second one was on the other night, and I'd never seen it. I watched it's not, about half of it. It's not bad. No, it's it was got, entertaining. It's, it's got uh, Elizabeth, uh, Ju- uh, yeah, Julia, Julia Elizabeth. from Lost. Yeah, so we got we got lost in the podcast. Yeah, Good we job. did. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> oh, and uh, Star Wars. Star Wars. Not the Star Wars holiday special. <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen that, but I've heard horrible things about it. It is painful. I I want part of me wants to watch the Rift Tracks version of it, but I rewatched it recently with this guy on the internet called the Nostalgia Critic, 
funny guy, very similar lines, filthy mouth. But but it was so painful to sit through, even with the comedy. And oh boy, yeah, it's unbelievable. Anyway, <laughs> that's our holiday list. That's all we've got. That's all we got. Again, short episode today, but I know you've got more important things to do. Go open some presents. Uh, have some eggnog. Yeah, for me, since I don't eggnog. like eggnog. Yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> either, actually. <laughs> Have some hot chocolate. Hot chocolate. That sounds great. Snow, throw a snowball at your best friend. <laughs> uh, we're not quite certain when we'll be back. Um, we have late January, maybe? Maybe late January. Maybe. We don't. No promises. No promises. But we will be back next year in 2011. And, uh, and we'll see. We'll see, we'll see what new... I'll have one more semester left of grad school. And probably after that, podcasting will be a lot easier. <laughs> and I'll be... Uh, Cross fingers working on the third string Fred book. Ooh, really? Yeah. Sounds exciting. Bucket's done. Bucket's done, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it all up yet? I posted it tonight, the last one. Oh man, I'm gonna have to go read it. Yeah, that's some homework for me and some homework for you. <laughs> but again, if you want to contact us, of course you can always leave us uh, a comment on our blog, derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Um you can email us at derailedtrains at gmail.com. And hope you all have a very Merry Christmas. We're going to leave you with another, this is a classic OC Remix uh, Christmas song. This is Super Mario's Sleigh Ride. I think you can guess what game series it comes from. Well, I think it's mainly Super Mario World. Yeah, I believe so. From, I forget the name of the band. It's the one-ups. Is it the one-ups? All right, one-ups. Who makes some of the best uh, video game swing music you will ever find. So, all right. And with that, this is Tim. And this is Nick. Merry Merry Christmas. Christmas!